Some mornings I feel this more than others, but I always feel it. And that is just a heart of gratitude for the privilege of being your pastor. I just can't imagine a better group of people to share life with. And so, sincerely, thank you for giving me this privilege to be in this role with such an amazing group of people. Um, speaking of... <laughs> speaking of amazing group of people, um, I had the privilege of spending some time with Meredith Hardy this past week, and uh, she introduced me to a new term that really caught my attention. It was something that she learned through her crisis response training that she was doing through Barnabas International. As you probably remember, that is the mission agency that Meredith now works with. And the goal of this mission is to come alongside to shepherd and support missionaries who are in the field and to counsel them because of the crisis that they have, many of them have experienced um, in that role. So, so in our conversation, Meredith introduced me to this idea of biblical resilience, which intrigued me because resilience is something I'm familiar with. I may not be very good at it, <laughs> but I know what it is. By definition, resilience is a, a person's ability to bounce back from a difficult situation. It's the ability to endure difficulty. It's the same idea as grit or mental fortitude. It's got this psychological component to it. It's how a person chooses to think or act in difficult situations. Living an emotionally healthy life in spite of tragedy and hardship. That's resilience. But biblical resilience has a whole nother dimension, a spiritual dimension that's added onto that idea. It's God's ability to take what is evil and use it for good. Biblical resilience is what gives Christians the ability to suffer greatly and yet still grow from it. Because unlike secular psychology that would tell you that you, you build resilience on your own, it's kind of a, a self-made effort, biblical resilience is learning to deepen your dependence on God. It's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, he says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Notice how he talks about it's being made perfect, which tells us that it's a work in progress. It's something that develops over time, so that as our faith deepens, our resilience is strengthened, giving us a greater capacity to deal with the difficulties that we all face in life. That's what Peter is pointing us to in our passage this morning, and it's why it caught my attention, because I believe Peter is trying to equip us with tools to help build resilience within our faith. And so as we look at his word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you, we know that um, we are weak and frail. We understand the idea of resilience, but 
probably for many of us, if not all of us, we struggle with really living that out. Because in and of ourselves, we really can't bear the weight of the reality of things that happen in this world. So Lord, would you allow us today, by the work of your Spirit, through the power of your Word, and to the hearts of your people, would you help us understand what it means to build a resilient faith through an ever-deepening, abiding relationship with you? Stir that within our hearts. Help us to long for it with a deep desire that is only satisfied in you. Give us a taste of that this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And let's pick up where we left off last, uh, beginning in verse 13. Peter writes in verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to pause here after just this one verse because there's an important word here that we need to pay attention to. It's the word therefore. And that word is like a grammatical stop sign when you read the Bible. It's the author's way of highlighting a transition that's about to take place in his argument. Because unlike a road sign where you might stop and then look right and then look left, right? When you come to this stop sign in Scripture, you actually need to look backwards. Taking what has already been said and applying it to what will then be said next. It's a bridge. Looking at first what Christ has done and then applying it as a Christian to our daily lives. Because in the original context, verses 3 through 12 is one long sentence in Greek. It identifies God's chosen people who have been born again to a living hope and an imperishable inheritance. It highlights the sovereign work of God in the midst of our struggles, refining our faith through the trials we face. And we talked about this last week. Refining our faith through the, the trials we face, deepening our intimacy through the suffering we experience. And using our pain to point us to the hope of salvation. Loosening our grip on this world so that our heart longs for eternity. Looking back on those truths. Peter then, looking forward, now says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, no matter what's going on in your daily life, do not lose sight of your future hope. Fix your hope completely. He's saying rely exclusively on the grace to be revealed. This is a full and undivided confidence in the finished work of the cross. Believing in the total forgiveness and the complete acceptance that comes through faith in Christ alone. This is the imperative of the passage, and everything else around it is intended to support that idea. In fact, you could read that passage differently by saying, 
fix your hope completely on the grace to be revealed. That's the imperative. And then here's how. By preparing your minds for action, being sober in spirit. That phrase, preparing your mind for action, is really interesting in the original language because it literally means gird the loins of your mind. That's what it says. Gird the loins of your mind. Now, gird your loins is not a familiar term for us in our culture, but it was a very familiar Jewish idiom at the time, and it basically means get ready for some hard work. Okay? In our culture today, we would say it's time to roll up your sleeves. It's the exact same idea because long sleeves and long robes get in your way when you're trying to do something that requires labor. So it's saying, gird the loins of your mind, which is basically saying, be prepared, be alert, be expectant, be ready. And it's possible, I think very likely, that in this idea, he is connecting the comments that God made when he was talking about the first Passover meal. Because in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, God says this, Now you shall eat in this manner, listen to what he says first, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat in haste, in a hurry. This is the Lord's Passover. Because remember, the Israelites have already experienced nine deadly plagues of judgment. The worst was yet to come, the tenth plague which was the death of every firstborn child, unless the blood of a lamb sacrificed was painted over the door of the home, in which case the angel of death would pass over that home and redeem that family. Using that same imagery, Peter is reminding his reader that they have, in Christ, been protected from God's judgment because they are covered by the blood of Jesus shed for the forgiveness of sins and just like the Israelites were eagerly anticipating God's deliverance we should look expectantly for our day of redemption do you see the connection gird the loins of your mind be prepared be expectant look for the day of deliverance That's why Jesus tells his disciples in Luke chapter 12, verse 35, listening to the same language, the same idea. Be dressed in readiness. Keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Our hope is alive to the degree that we are eagerly anticipating Christ's return. Girding the loins of our mind by keeping our minds sober. Which is in the present perfect tense, meaning, like we said earlier, it's an, it's an ongoing action of readiness. Instead of being distracted and, and disoriented by what is happening in the world around us, we're called to be self-controlled, to be sober, focused on the hope that is set before us. 
It's a heavenly focus. It's where the Bible tells us to set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. Because we need to understand that the Bible is calling us to this lifestyle. It is admonishing us to this perspective because there's no neutral ground. At any given moment in time, we are either being conformed by the world or we are being transformed by the renewing of our mind. There is no neutral ground. And since we cannot possibly, no matter how hard we try, eliminate the influence of the world around us, we have to do something different. See, it'd be like trying to dodge raindrops in the midst of a thunderstorm. Okay, It's not going to happen. You are going to get wet. So using that same picture or analogy, we need the umbrella of God's protection, which is only found when we prayerfully and purposefully set our minds on Christ. Think about things above, not on things of the earth. Fixing our hope completely on the grace to be revealed. Look at how he continues in verse 14. As obedient children, Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. So similar to the first verse that we've already looked at, the main verb in this one is found in verse 15 where it says, be holy. But this is not something that we gird up our loins and go do, right? Because holiness, from a biblical perspective, is not something you become. It's who you are in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you are a new creation in Christ. Old things have gone. Behold, we need to live out of our new creation identity in Christ. He begins verse 14 by saying, as obedient children, or would actually more literally read, as children of obedience. In other words, this is a family trait for those who belong to God. Because our new nature, don't miss this, our new nature is bent towards obedience. And the reason we know that's true is because of the living work of the Spirit within us. Jesus said in John 14, 26, but the Helper, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. We know that in other places of Scripture, the the Spirit is the one who convicts us of sin. The Spirit is the one who leads us into all truth. The Spirit is the one who guides us with his wisdom and strengthens us in our weakness. So holiness is not the result of what we do. It's what the sanctifying work of the Spirit does in us. Our obedience is the outcome of our surrender. Our obedience is the outcome of our surrender. Turning from self-sufficiency to a heart of God-dependency. The Bible says those who walk in the Spirit will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Our battle against sin is won when we surrender to Christ and rely on the work of His Spirit. 
Paul admonishes audience. Do not be conformed to the lusts which were yours in ignorance. It reminds me of a book I recently read called The Boys in the Boat. It's been out a while. Some of you probably read it, but it's about the American rowing team who competed in the 1936 Olympics, which, as you probably remember, was held in Germany. But it was just at the beginning of the Third Reich, so the evil of Hitler had not yet been fully exposed. In fact, the Olympic Games were a huge propaganda ploy by Hitler and the Nazi regime to cover up all that was happening and instead present a very advanced, civil, and united Germany. And it worked. Because everyone who went to the Olympic Games said, this place is awesome. These people are doing an incredible job. They just didn't see the evil that was hidden behind the curtain. Well, apart from Christ, the very same thing is true for us. We lived in this world thinking this is a pretty awesome place. We just didn't know that the world was ruled by an evil tyrant far worse than Adolf Hitler. We were enslaved by sin. We were deluded by a deceptive propaganda. Paul reminds Titus in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, for we also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient. There it is, deceived, enslaved. Listen to these words, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But through faith in Christ, our eyes were opened so that we could turn from darkness to light from the domain of Satan to the righteous rule of God, having been set free from the power of sin's control. Because apart from Christ, you were controlled by sin and you had no choice. Now that you are in Christ, that you are alive in Christ, you do. You have a choice. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, here's the choice. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lusts. You have a choice because sin is no longer your master. Paul goes on to say in that same passage, present yourselves to God and your members as instruments of righteousness. It's the same idea of what Peter's saying in our passage. Do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in ignorance. Your eyes have been opened. Now you see. Both are saying live out of your new creation identity in Christ. You are one in whom Christ dwells. Your holiness is not because of what you do. It's because of the one who dwells in you. Holiness is the outcome of surrender. Please don't miss that. Not the result of diligent work. It's living out of who you are. Not trying to become someone you think you need to be. Be holy by living in accordance with your new creation identity in Christ, walking in obedience to the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Look how he finishes in verse 16. 
But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As you've read through the Bible, you recognize this statement made by God several times throughout the Old Testament. And really, each time, it's calling God's people to conform their character to God's character. So so instead of being conformed by the, the values and influence of the world around us, we are to be conformed into the image of Christ, the one who is at work within us. Separating ourselves from evil so that we can walk in purity. Which will result in a lifestyle that looks very different than the world around us. Which may mean we would be persecuted because of our faith just like we see in the audience that Peter is writing to. But let's not lose the connection with where we started this morning. Because remember, it's a bridge, right? From the work of Christ to the life of the Christian. It establishes a bond of of what's happening in our inner life to how we see that lived out in our every day. Knowing that becoming like Christ is a result of being with Christ. Hey, don't miss that. Becoming like Christ is the result of being with Christ. We are holy because he is holy. We don't have a righteousness of our own based on what we do. We have a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of our faith in Jesus Christ. We are righteous because he is righteous. And in the same way, we are holy because he is holy. This is not about trying to become something that you think you should be, as if God loves some future version of you. This is about living out of who you already are in Christ, fixing your hope completely on the grace to be revealed. And so with that in mind, I want us to kind of finish up this morning by revisiting that idea of Biblical resilience. Because I believe there's a really clear connection to what we've looked at in our passage this morning. And I hope that you're seeing it as we walk through it together. And I want to try to simplify it into three specific things, which I believe help build a more resilient faith. Giving us the ability to to cope with difficult circumstances. Living an emotional, healthy, and meaningful life despite less than optimal situations. I see three important convictions that Peter is teaching us, and it is this. Number one, know to whom you belong. Number two, understand what he has done. And then number three, have confidence in what he will do. And listen, I know that's not rocket science, okay? But here's something that I want you to be comforted by. The Bible is not meant to be complicated. It's actually a very simple truth. Know to whom you belong. Understand what he has done and have confidence in what he will do. Know to whom you belong. You have been chosen. We've been walking through this. This is what Peter's tried to impress upon us as he begins this letter. He says, know to whom you belong. You've been chosen, persistently pursued by 
a fatherly affection from God. You belong to him. He delights in you and not some future version of you. Because from the moment you believed, you were his beloved in whom he is well pleased. Adopted into the family of God through faith as sons and daughters of the one true king. That's who you are. Based on who you are, because of what Christ has done. Your sins are forgiven because of the finished work of the cross. You are a new creation in Christ, born again to a living hope and transformed by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. You belong to God because of the work that Christ has done, giving you confidence in what He will do. Knowing, as we've been learning, that your inheritance is imperishable. It's undefiled, and it will not fade away. It's a living hope that is fulfilled by a loving Savior, a promise made secure by the presence of the Holy Spirit, who is a pledge of our inheritance, a seal of God's approval. Biblical resilience comes from knowing to whom you belong, This is what allows us to to live in a fallen world and still still see the good in the midst of it. Places where we know that God is at work. Knowing that peace and security does not come from our circumstances. Instead, we look to the Lord. We talked about this last week as well. It's what allows us to be in a difficult circumstance, a, a situation that stirs emotions within us, whether that be fear, anxiety, disappointment, out and we ask the Lord in that moment how do you want me to trust you in this because we believe he is present and his provision is available when we learn to trust in him how do you want me to trust you and listen even when we fail we know that in God's economy as a child of God It's something that we can actually learn from because it's not a final verdict. That was done on the cross. Know to whom you belong. Understand what he has done. Have confidence in what he will do. That's the key to having resilient faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of being a child of God belonging to you as a co-heir with Christ. Lord, would you help us just absorb the reality of that new creation identity. Old things have gone. Behold, new things have come. Our heart, through the work of the Holy Spirit, is bent towards obedience. So may we live as children of obedience not conforming to the world around us, not being distracted by what is happening around us, but fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, setting our minds on things above and not on things of the earth. Lord, help us have the certain assurance of your promised return and the complete redemption that we have. Like those Israelites, as they were eating that Passover meal, having experienced the evident judgment of your hand upon 
the people who had turned against you. But then being covered by the blood of that sacrifice, being ready and anticipating your deliverance that was promised, may we, within our hearts, have that same urgent expectation that says, come, Lord Jesus, come. And may we live every day expectant that it is the day of his return and we are ready. Father, thank you for the privilege of spending this time together in your word. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. You can be seated. Will's going to come up. As Will's does, let me just encourage you to consider something that I'll confess took me years of my Christian life to understand. And that is, the goal in life is not to try to sin less. It's learning to love Jesus more. Man, if you can grab a hold of that and turn your affections towards him, relying on the living and active spirit at work in your life, leading you into all spiritual wisdom and truth, guiding you in your decisions, strengthening you in your weaknesses, man, you have discovered what the Christian life is all about. So don't try to sin less. Learn to love Jesus more. Amen?